Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. And beloved, if you have your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 8 as we continue on in our study through the book of Revelation. This evening we will read through Revelation 8 and 9. Let's hear God's holy word. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Moving on to chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then, the, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, 
and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman, women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a name as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops were twice 10,000 times 10,000, I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. And the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, their heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Praise be to God for his word. Please pray with me. O oh, gracious Heavenly Father, when we look at your word, we see the awesomeness of your justice and your power. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to discern these very difficult visions and images, that you would be with us and guide us as we look at this, these passages this evening. Bless us now, we pray, that we would be able to apply these truths to our hearts. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, in a symphony, there are musical themes that run throughout the different movements of a piece. And these musical themes may vary according to tempo and to instrumentation, but these musical themes are repeated and undergird the whole work, moving it along to the final note, the glorious finale. And the book of Revelation is no different. Revelation is like an orchestral piece with repeated movements that convey the central message And that central message is that Christ is coming again as a victorious, conquering king who will forever vanquish evil, who will judge the world and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And over and over again, the different visions in Revelation repeat these same truths, that the church will be under siege, that the church will undergo persecution, and that creation and humanity will undergo intense turmoil before Christ comes to judge once and for all. Now, last week, we heard the first movement in chapters 6 and 7. The seven scrolls, the seven seals of the scroll that are opened. And as each seal is opened, judgments gallop through the earth as the four horsemen unleash war and death and famine. And it also depicts in the fifth seal how God's people will suffer persecution and a world hostile to the gospel. And then with the opening of the sixth seal comes the final judgment as the Lord returns in the great day of his wrath, and those who are outside of Christ, both the great and the small, they hide in terror and cry out for death to take them rather than experience the holy king's just wrath for their sin and their rebellion. And then, at the beginning of chapter 8, We expect at the beginning, at the opening of the seventh seal, that the Lord will then at that moment usher in a new heaven and a new earth, having judged the world and vanquished all evil. And as we read about the opening of the seventh seal, we are on the edge of our seats, as is all of heaven as we anticipate the final and full consummation of Christ's kingdom. But what happens? Verse 1 says that there was silence in heaven. Silence in heaven? How can that be? As one commentator remarks, it's as if all of the heavenly host are waiting They're waiting, waiting, holding their collective breath, waiting for Christ the King to usher in the final stage of his victorious kingdom when the seventh seal is open. But then what happens? Well, John receives a fresh vision, a vision which circles back around to the point where the first seal was opened. And we go back to where we started with the breaking of the first seal. 
and the second movement of the symphony begins to play. And it plays with slight variations in tone and rhythm. And this time, this time, the music has a darker, deeper intensity. But the same themes are heard again. Or to put it another way, the big sweeping canvas of Revelation is like a diamond. And these chapters are but different facets of the same events in time shown to us through these different visions. And in these different visions, we see history moving from Christ's ascension to his return in different ways. But all, all culminating in his return in judgment, bringing justice for his people and the renewal of his creation. And so we come to chapter 8 and chapter 9, which is a different facet of the same diamond, a different movement of the grand symphony of the Lord working through history to bring about his judgment and to to demonstrate his amazing, wonderful grace. And in this movement with the seven trumpets, the tune is familiar but with slight variations. The first movement, with the opening of the seven seals, focuses more on the woes of the persecuted church, with Christ coming once and for all to eradicate the enemy that hounds his people. But with the second movement, we hear a variation in tone. With the blowing of the seven trumpets, we hear an emphasis not on the persecution of God's people, but we hear the judgment of those who are outside of Christ. And this vision of blasting trumpets, this vision of blasting trumpets, well, those trumpets sound vaguely familiar, don't they? We've heard this tune before. The blaring of trumpets sounding impending doom and judgment? John's vision echoes back to Joshua uh, Joshua 6, to the fall of Jericho, when the priests sounded trumpets as the people of Israel walked around the walled city of Jericho for six days. And those trumpets served as a warning warning of impending doom and destruction. And then on the seventh day, the Israelites walked around the city seven times, which is significant as the number seven is symbolic of completion. And after they walked around the impenetrable fortified city, the trumpets blasting for the seventh day at the seventh time, what happened? Well, the walls came a-tumbling down, and judgment had come to the city of Jericho. And in this vision of the heavenly realm, history repeats itself. And with the sounding of these seven trumpets, warnings are given to the unbelieving world to repent. The calamities and devastation that ensues with each trumpet, well, these disasters show the power of a just, 
holy God to judge the world for their rejection of their King and their Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like the destruction of Jericho, the six trumpets point to the Lord's final judgment, a final judgment that comes with the blast of the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet as seven again is the number of completion. And with the sounding of the seventh trumpet signifying completion, the Lord's plan of redeeming a people for himself reaches its climactic end. It reaches the grand finale. And there is rest and there is renewal, and the spiritual battle with the evil one has ended. Satan and the dark forces of evil are forever, once and for all, eradicated by our victorious Savior. And all of that is encapsulated in four chapters, from chapter 8 through chapter 11. And this movement of God's grand symphony and verse begins in verse 3 of chapter 8 with a vision of the heavenly temple where an angel with a golden censer is burning incense and the smoke of the incense represents the prayers of God's persecuted people being lifted up before the heavenly throne of God we hear a note of this vision in Psalm 141.2 where the psalmist says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you as he worships the Lord. The prayers of the Lord's persecuted people are lifted up. They're lifted up to the presence of the Lord like smoke. And he hears them. And as they cry out, How long, O Lord? When will you come again? When will you bring justice to your embattled people? And then what happens next? In verse 5, the angel fills the censer with fire. And the angel hurls it to the earth. And verse 5 goes on to say that there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashings of lightning and, uh, and an earthquake which symbolizes the coming of the Lord in judgment and justice and of his presence. And then the seven angels begin to sound the trumpets given them by the Lord to sound the warning and to bring judgment upon the earth. In verse, in, uh, in verse, in the first verse there, the first angel sounds the trumpet, and the earth is showered with hail and fire and blood, and a third of the earth is consumed. And in verse 8, the second trumpet is sounded, and a third of the sea becomes blood, bringing death and destruction to ships and sea creatures. And then the third trumpet sounds, and the, this one turns a third of the fresh water to bitterness, bringing death to those who drink it. And when the fourth trumpet is sounded, the sun and the stars are struck, bringing darkness to a third of the earth. 
So by the fourth trumpet, what do we see? We see God's creation, in a sense, being deconstructed, as it were, in judgment for man's sin. Revelation 8 is a reversal of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we see the created areas of domain that the Lord creates for his creatures to inhabit. He creates the heavens and the earth and the seas, and he creates the sun and the moon to rule the day and the night, and he declares his creation good. But in Revelation 8, he is bringing judgment to the created order due to the corruption of man's sin. Creation sets itself against itself. It has become marred. Man's sin has affected creation in such a way that creation turns against itself as the Lord brings judgment. And we see in Revelation 8 that some of the forces of nature damage a third of each of the realms that the Lord has created in Genesis 1. The earth, the heavens, and the seas, they experience the Lord's reckoning against man's rebellion as one-third of each realm is destroyed. So is it any wonder then that Paul writes in Romans 8.22 that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now under the curse of the fall. As Paul writes, for the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Or to put it another way, creation does not function as it did before the fall when God declared it good. Now creation is cursed and nature turns against itself. You might say that there is a work of anti-creation. Destruction ensues in our fallen world where a part of nature destroys creation. And beloved, we got a very real example of the power of nature to destroy this week with the Hurricane Ian. And was this destructive power a birth pang? that points to when the Lord will return in judgment someday? Well, moving on, we see in Revelation 8 that there is something of a reversal of Genesis 1. And we also see how Revelation 8 looks back to the book of Joel, to his vision in chapter 2. It's as if John's vision in Revelation 8 is lifted right out of Joel 2, demonstrating the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the unity of Scripture and its message. Joel 2 starts out saying, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. 
a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now Joel, too, prophesizes the destruction of Israel by the Babylonians, but it is a prophecy that has a ripple effect Yes, Joel's prophecy was fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, but that vision reverberates throughout history, and it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. So we hear an echo of Joel 2 in John's vision in Revelation 8. And we also hear the echo of Joel 1 in Revelation 9. In chapter 9, things intensify as the judgments amplify. The fifth trumpet is sounded and this blast unleashes Satan, pictured as a fallen angel. John sees a glimpse of what the Lord says in Luke 10, 18, I beheld Satan falling as lightning from heaven. And in Revelation 9, Satan again is depicted like a star falling from heaven, who is given permission by the Lord to unlock the gates of Hades, to unleash the horrors of hell upon those who reject Christ. Satan unleashes locusts from the pit of hell as judgment against those who reject Christ and those who persecute his people. And in this judgment, we hear a refrain of Joel 1 who prophesied against Israel that they would be overtaken by locusts, causing famine and death out of judgment for their unbelief and rebellion against the Lord. But Revelation 9 is a prophecy of Joel on steroids. These locusts are even more fierce and frightening than the ones depicted in Joel 1. For these hellish locusts do not strip away crops. They attack those who are not the Lord's with piercing stings. And whereas a normal swarm of locusts eat and move on quickly to greener pastures, these heinous locusts linger for five months, inflicting pain on the Lord's enemies, those who deny him, those who do not have the mark of faith on them. And the trauma is so painful, the evil so fierce that those afflicted will want death, but death escapes them. And as we can see, these are no ordinary locusts. What do they symbolize? Commentators suggest that these locusts are demonic forces, or an army, or both. But what is clear is that they represent invincible strength by their iron breastplates. And they inflict torture with their stingers and razor-like teeth. So whatever they are, they instill a sense of dreadful fear. The music of this movement 
sends chills down your spine as these locusts suggest demonic forces mingled with human agency. We may not understand what these locusts are fully, but we can make several observations about their significance. New Testament scholar Vern Poitras comments, the vision of locusts depicts the self-defeating and tormenting nature of wickedness in the human soul. What does he mean? The sting of these locusts is a fitting judgment to those who rebel against Christ and worship other things rather than their creator, King Jesus. What is in view here is the judgment against idolatry. For what is idolatry but the worship of anything other than Christ, our creator and king, who deserves all of our heart's devotion? But those who do not know Christ, those who rebel against him, put their heart's devotion on other things. We can think of any number of things, power, pleasure, popularity, and a life of pursuing those things, a life of idolatry lived apart from Christ. Well, what does it do? It stings. It stings. Such a life stings in several ways. Those who follow idols get stung by them. Idolatry stings like a hellish locust because it bites back. The very thing that you think will bring you happiness, joy, and fulfillment apart from Christ ultimately does not satisfy the deep longings of your heart. And we end up exclaiming like the preacher of Ecclesiastes that life under the sun, life limited to just this world and its pleasure is fleeting and futile. Because the guy with the most, who dies with the most toys, well, he dies. And his life is but a vapor. And what was all that striving for? Idolatry stings. It hurts us when we foolishly believe it will serve us. We strive and we strive only to say, along with Mick Jagger, I don't get no satisfaction. Life without Christ. A life of idolatry stings because in its essence, it's all about self-worship. We strive after the things apart from Christ, thinking that they will serve us by satisfying us, only to find nothingness. And ultimately, our self-worship, our striving after the blessings of God, apart from acknowledging Him, ends with the ultimate sting, the sting of death. For the wages of sin, of sin, of idolatry, is death, and it stings us. Death stings us. So there is justice depicted here. 
Those who do not acknowledge Christ as king and creator, the giver of life, those who do not acknowledge his rightful reign over their lives as the one who created them, who has provided for them, who sustains them in their rebellion, they get what they want. They get what they deserve, an eternity apart from Christ. In an eternity apart from his light and his goodness and his grace. Well, moving on, the sixth trumpet blast arrives in verse, verses 13 through 19. And this trumpet blast ushers in what appears to be an immense army which destroys a third of mankind as part of God's judgment for their rebellion. So John depicts future wars, which are judgment for the rejection of Christ. Now, with all of these calamities, notice that these terrifying judgments are limited. They're limited. A third of mankind is killed in war, but not all humanity. A third of the earth and heavens are destroyed, but not all of creation. The locusts are active for five months and then no more. We see in this movement, these judgments are not full and complete, affecting everyone and all of creation. That comes in the next movement later on in chapter 16 with the pouring out of the seven bowls. But the message is clear. The message is clear. There is still time. Those things which are destroyed in judgment serve as a cautionary tale to those who survive them. These trumpet blasts serve as a wake-up call to the rebellious world that the time is now. The time is now to acknowledge King Jesus. Now, in these afflictions and judgments, do you hear something familiar? Water turning into blood, fire and hail, invading locusts, and darkness falling upon the earth. Do we not hear the murmur of the plagues sent upon Egypt in this vision? Those plagues served a similar purpose. They were, not, they were meant not only as judgment against Egypt for enslaving God's people, they too acted as a wake-up call. Through those plagues, was it not the Lord saying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I am king. I am the true God, Pharaoh. You are not. Listen to me. Listen to me and free my people. But instead of the plagues causing Pharaoh to repent and acknowledge the supremacy and sovereignty of the Lord, the plagues only harden his heart more in his stubborn arrogance against the Lord. And we see a parallel of this in John's vision as well. Even though these plagues are worse than what Egypt experienced in scope and intensity and severity, yet these plagues, 
These plagues garner the same response. Notice at the end of 9, at verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murderers, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. It's a pretty sad depiction of the human heart, but it's an accurate one, is it not? After all, how does the Lord, how does Paul describe those who are apart from Christ in Ephesians 2.1? That they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They care not for Christ and are unable to come to him apart from the Lord reviving their dead hearts. And it's a varying, sobering truth, is it not? Well, moving on, we only have time to touch upon the next two chapters, chapter 10 and 11. But in general, we see again in terms of the structure a similarity with the first movement in our symphony, the seven seals, and the second movement of the seven trumpets. Both have a musical interlude placed at the same location in the score. With the first movement, there is an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal, so there is an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet sounding as well. And we see this interlude in chapter 10. Well, again, we don't have time to look at the full chapter, but in this chapter, John is given a scroll to eat representing God's Word. And in this vision, in Revelation 10, it's reflective of Ezekiel 3.1, where the Lord commands Ezekiel to eat the scroll, which is symbolic of God's Word. And as Ezekiel eats it, he finds that it's sweet to his taste like the psalmist does in Psalm 119, where the psalmist exclaims, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And in a similar fashion, the angel in Revelation 10 asks John to eat a scroll representing God's word, which at first tastes sweet. But this is different. This one, this time it turns bitter. As the sweetness represents the word of God itself, but the bitterness arises from the message of doom, which he is commanded to prophesy against many people and nations and languages and kings. And the point here is that John is to be a witness to the Lord, speaking a message of the gospel to a hostile world. And in the same vein, we have other witnesses in the next chapter, chapter 11, who also speak God's word and prophesy to hostile nations. And much could be unpacked here, but the main point I want to make is that these two witnesses symbolize the church, God's people in our witness to Christ as we proclaim the truth. And the reason they appear to be representatives of the church universal is that there are two of them, which reminds us of Jesus' instruction for the disciples to go out in pairs, preaching the kingdom during his earthly ministry. And they are also referenced as two lampstands, which brings us back to the beginning of Revelation, where the seven churches are described as lampstands. And even though these two witnesses are powerful, 
They are killed by the beast, which according to Vern Poitras may represent demonized power, state power hostile to the gospel. And yet the message is that even though the church seems to be eradicated and the hostile nations celebrate its demise, yet the Lord brings his church back to life. The message is clear and it's triumphant that through the forces, that though the forces of evil will try and snuff out the church, nothing, nothing will prevail against God's kingdom and his church and his people will be victorious. We see glimpses of this in our own day with the rise of communist nations who have sought to destroy Christianity through intense persecution, only to see the church grow through persecution. Well, the musical interlude ends in chapter 11, 14. And we pick up the music of the last trumpet in verse 15. Starting in verse 15, the seventh trumpet is sounded, and the Lord returns to judge the earth and usher in a new heaven and new earth. His plan of redemption is fulfilled with his return, and the whole of heaven, they shout, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit before the Lord offer their worship, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then at the very end of chapter 11, we see this beautiful detail in John's vision. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, in the earthly temple, we know that the ark was contained in the Holy of Holies. It was out of sight, obscured by the temple curtains, representing separation between God and his people. God's presence, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, was so holy that no one could approach it. And yet, in John's vision, the ark is open. There's no more curtain, symbolizing the free access that God's people have to him through Christ, who has taken away all of our sin. So there is an immediacy and an openness now between the Lord and his people because of what Christ has done for us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and we can go boldly to the Lord's throne of grace, knowing that we are accepted because we are in Christ. 
Having put our faith in Christ, the just Heavenly Father sees us, and as He sees us, He sees us like His Son, to whom He says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So this vision of John reminds us of the tremendous overflowing grace that we have received through Christ who has torn down the wall of separation between us and our holy, just God. And beloved, we know that he did it at the cost of his own life. In saving us, the Lord Jesus took upon himself the judgment that we deserved. And in this vision of John, we see the horrible magnitude of the judgment that we deserved, but that the judgment that we were spared because of our Savior. These horrific judgments which we have been spared from, are they not an indication of what our Savior experienced on the cross? when he bore the full judgment for all of our sin and rebellion and our idolatry. Oh, how it must have stung him. So we see in this vision the heinous depths of our sin by the judgments that they deserve. And we also then see the wonder and the beauty of the grace of the Lord and that we were spared them. For if it were not for the grace of the Lord, where would we be? What would we expect but His righteous wrath, which we so richly deserved because of our idolatrous hearts? So what do we do with this vision? and the truth it reveals of impending doom for those who do not believe in Christ. Well, first of all, it leads us to worship. It leads us to worship and praise for Christ's redeeming power in our lives, that he did not treat us as our sins deserve, but solely, solely out of his grace, he saved us from the judgment that we deserved. For what were we? We were dead to Christ in our sin. Our hearts were gnarled and stone cold. But what happened? His life-giving spirit took our stony, dead hearts and he brought them to life so that we could believe in him. And having faith in Christ, we have now eternal life with him. And if he had not done that work within us, we would be like all those others in John's vision who witness the calamities of his judgment, but do not, who cannot repent because they are cold to Christ and in rebellion against him. And it raises the question then, where do you stand with Christ? Where is your allegiance have you acknowledged that he is the Lord of life? Or are you trying to make sense of life apart from the one who gave you life? Beloved in Christ, what has been your experience? What has been our experience? 
In 1 Corinthians 6, do we not hear a strand of John's vision when Paul writes, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Oh, this vision leads us to worship. And then finally, it leads us to witness. This vision reminds us that the days of this earth are numbered. The Lord will return in judgment at the last trumpet blast. And how do we live in that reality? There are those who do not know about his impending judgment. And how will they hear the gospel unless we tell them? So the question for us is, will we be like those witnesses in chapter 11 who faithfully proclaim the gospel in a hostile world? Let's pray together. O gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word, how it challenges us, how it comforts us, how it encourages us. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to absorb these truths to our hearts, that we, we see your grace and your mercy to us, and that you have spared us your judgment, your just judgment, and that you have given us eternal life through Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to be faithful witnesses to you, both now and in the week ahead and months and years ahead. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.